On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, filling in, we're going to be talking to Constantine Maroulis, former American Idol finalist, Broadway star, about his friend Nick Cordero, Hamilton actor, singer, who passed away on the weekend. We're going to be talking to Ann Lopez, who is an education expert, a diversity expert within education, about a lesser known, a lesser highlighted part of the Ford government's announcement about changes in the school system, which is to hire more black teachers so black students can see themselves reflected at the front of the class. And we're going to talk to a Mac prof who is our version of Indiana Jones, and he will tell his story of why he earns that title. All coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We learned yesterday that after a long, 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 and I mean, it's it's hard to understate the story. If you've been following the story of Nick Cordero, grew up in Hamilton, right across the street, basically, from the radio station, went to Westdale High School, was involved at Theater Aquarius, went on to huge success in Broadway, in some television, uh, got COVID back on March 31st, ended up in hospital on April the 1st, and has been fighting both COVID and then when it left, when he finally beat that, the after effects, uh, yesterday it finally was too much and uh, and he passed away, we learned on an Instagram post from his wife, Amanda. Uh, Constantine Maroulis is a Broadway star. He's a two-time Tony Award nominee. He was a finalist. Many of you will remember him as a finalist on American Idol the year Carrie Underwood won. Not for Carrie Underwood, man, he would have been the champion. Um, he's got a new album coming out on July the 10th called Until I'm Wanted, and he was a very good, very close friend of Nick Cordero. He joins us now. Constantine, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me, and um, thank you for your beautiful tribute uh, to our to our brother Nick. It's a very difficult time for all of us in the community um, who love him and and never stopped believing um, in his his courage and strength uh, during these uh, crazy times. And our heart is just our our hearts are broken for Amanda and uh, his beautiful son Elvis, his mother Leslie. Uh, I know she's uh, still up in the area, and uh, we're 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 gutted, man. We are gutted. How did you and Nick connect? Where, what's your connection with him? Yeah, I knew Nick um, before I got to meet him. Uh, there, there aren't many six foot three plus actors in our in our community, <laughs> so uh, I think the handful of us uh, we know each other pretty well. And uh, certainly, I got to know him and and get so close with him on my on my tour of rock of ages i had originated the show on broadway we saw great success with the show um all over the world he, he played he awards. played in the show with you right he played in the show yeah. with you he did he played dennis dupree dennis dupree is the owner of the bourbon room where the where our story in rock of ages takes place and i play drew Bowley. drew was the wannabe rocker and Dennis is sort of a father figure to him. And, you know, I had originated the role on Broadway with this incredible cast. So I was skeptical meeting the new cast that I was going to spend the next couple of years on the road with. And Nick just had this coolness and this ease about him. And he brought a whole new energy to the show and really was the foundation um, of, of our story. And we just bonded from day 
one. We would room together um, in in different cities. We would bond. You know, I I was a lot was expected of me um, doing a lot of press early, but he was the leader of the whole cast. And you know, I would often meet up with them uh, on some some journey they were on in whatever city we were in or some party we were at. We just all grew so close. I mean, really unbelievably close as a family. And uh, we're behind the scenes. We are just, uh, we're just devastated. uh, And our hearts are broken. Our hearts are broken. How long after you guys connected and were on the road, did you guys realize you shared a birthday together? (laughs) <laughs> not not long after i think that first day of rehearsal they they sort of have everyone kind of write down their birthdays so the stage manager can kind of provide um you know some sort of uh, recognition usually in the theater it's a big deal to have someone's birthday that people bring cakes and cupcakes so i think we knew we we're like i'm like wait you're september 17th he's like N- yeah I'm so- i was like wait what so that was just crazy we were just kind of kindred spirits from the start and uh you know, he's got so many great and close friends. And sometimes, you know, friends, you, you lose touch a little bit over the course of a year. And we both have families and, you know, he has a significant other. And, um, but we would always, always connect on our birthday via texts or voice notes or calls or FaceTime or in person. And, uh, he's, he's really, I'll I'll never forget him on, on our birthday ever again. I mean, he'll just always be with me. It's our birthday from now on, for sure. Your connection to him, I mean, as anyone who's listening can hear it in your voice, the emotion, I mean, it's obviously your connection is uh, is very close with him. Many people, though, who had never heard of him before this became very invested in his story. Why do you think yeah. that happened? You know, um, he's just a legendary person his his spirit his kindness his wife is an earth angel an earth angel as i've been calling her you know that wonderful song from the 50s um it's it's about a gal like her she's incredibly strong incredibly talented um her 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 inspiration is that she's put out there in the world during this has been incredible it's we've gravitated towards it her positivity her her strength. Um, she's kept going for her family. She's, she's worked. She's been there for him. She's created this, um, I don't know, this, this movement of positivity through, through prayer, through just kindness and strength and smiling. And she's, she's hurting. She's hurting inside. I know she is. And, um, it's been, I, I don't know. It's just been wonderful every day at, 3 p.m. Pacific and 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time here in the States. We we sing his songs. We connect on social media. People have been sending their videos and fan mail. And, you know, people from all over the world have sent m- even me messages saying, I-, I saw your post and I read about Nick's story. And I just, uh, I- I'm-, I'm praying for him and his family. And, uh, you know, I just I just think it's, it's it, they're just those kind of people. You know, when I go, no one's going to care. But when, when he, uh, you know, when he when he got into this mess, um, you know, we were all just frightened and none of us have slept in, in months. And I just can't imagine what uh, Leslie, his mother and, and Amanda have been going through, you know. So I just well, think and it's you talk- been just a wonderful story, you know. 
Constantine, you talk about Amanda's optimism and being upbeat and her smile and everything else to try and remain very, very, as I say, upbeat about this. Um, but it has been horrible. Anyone who's been following the story, the, 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 the number, the litany of things that he's gone through and the, and the, the roller coaster and the, especially the downs. I mean, it's been so, so incredibly difficult. I mean, as much as you are trying and your and his friends and your friends are trying to remain optimistic, were you hoping for the best, but kind of thinking that this may be the outcome? I just think from the beginning, we've had this, we've stayed positive. We're like, this is not the end of his story. You know, he, he, he woke from a coma that not many people could ever, you know, wake from. Um, the odds were against him all along. He had no pre-existing conditions. He was rocked with this. Um, he fought the virus off and it just got in his lungs in a way. And the damage, um, was just, uh, it was just too much to overcome. Um, you know, he lost his leg as we know, um, uh, due to some treatment that caused some clotting and we're like, okay, he lost his leg. Big deal. You know, we, we just want him home with his family, with his son and uh he'll figure out the rest you know he's he's a film actor now he's done his tap dancing part okay he uh he's done his dancing roles um it's about the next 40 years doing film and television and whatnot he and the prosthetics are incredible now people are running marathons uh he'll be fine you know and so it was like every time he overcame a battle we would um we would find the positivity okay next it, it, it was never it was never like that. We never thought this would be the end of his story. We, you just can't believe that. You know, you have to you have to believe that he could get through it. And we all needed him to get through it. And unfortunately, you know, um, it didn't work out that way. You mentioned the, the singing and dancing and social media that everybody was doing at 3 in L.A. and 6 o'clock here on the East Coast. Um, we played the song coming in at the start of the show today, just before we introduced you. I don't think that he possibly, without, of course, ever having any idea that this was going to happen, I don't think he possibly could have written a more appropriate song for what would be sort of the, the background song for his story. I mean, it, it was it was as if it was written for this. Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, I'm picking up my daughter, Malena, fourth grade. I'm sorry, I know, I, I, you gave it to me, I don't have it right now. Okay, I do recognize you, so I will let you go. Okay. you got to have that yellow star next time. Yeah, that's okay. Imagine even picking picking up your daughter from camp is is unbelievably hard, and uh, it's just weird times we're in, man. We're in some weird times. For sure, Um, for sure. His his hi baby. His um his song is I don't know. It's like it it fell from the sky uh, to us. You know, I mean the lyrics, the the hook, the message. it's unbelievable. It's really an unbelievable sort of, I don't know, un- otherworldly message that someone sent to us, uh, a gift someone granted us. And we've all been singing the song. We've done videos, myself, Stevie Van Zant from Bruce's E Street Band. We've all, we've all sang the songs. I'm going to continue to sing his songs. And, and that's, how we'll, uh, that's how we'll remember him for sure. The irony, and it, and it's a sad irony for sure, but um, this is a guy who worked incredibly hard to to make it, and he absolutely did make it. Um, but he is 
when his song finally gets on the radio and gets regular play, I, I'm, who knows if he was able to understand or appreciate that. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a cruel thing that it, it comes only in, because of this or at this time. Well, I know Amanda did everything she could to, to, to tell him what was going on and to, to shower him with love and tell him that their home is waiting for them and she's making it uh, perfect for them and that they will get through this and that nothing has changed with her as far as her feelings for him or their her outlook and that people are singing his song all over the world. And, and he, he knew, he knew, he knows. He knew how much we all loved him and he, he remembers... Um, uh, all of the stories, you know, that we've and all the adventures we've been on, and he, um, you know, he said goodbye to this to this world, and we said goodbye to him. But you know, hopefully, we'll all see each other again, you know. And uh, he's uh, he, he'll never be forgotten. And uh, if if anything, he's he's more a part of us than ever, you know. Constantine, what happens now? A TV and movies have very public um, ways of honoring performers who have passed away. We see it at the Oscars and we see it on TV. Does the stage community have a, any kind of similar thing? Is there something that will be done for him within that community when the stage can get back on the stage? Look, um, not something I've, I've, I've quite thought about, but absolutely, he's He's a huge part of our community on Broadway and in film and television. Um, often we dim the lights of Broadway. The iconic lights of, uh, of Broadway are dimmed generally before, uh, you know, the curtain is up on a given night of, uh, of our eight-show-a-week schedule. We dim all the lights um, on the outside and even spilling into Times Square it's you know it's a it's a it's a tribute um and i'm sure that they will honor him with that i'm sure they'll even make him a part of whatever awards ceremonies from the tonys to the oliviers to the oscars and whatnot you know they honor crew people on on movies he's certainly been in movies um you know, we haven't we haven't had our blockbuster hit, neither of us yet, but I'm sure that he'll be honored in some way. And 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 all of that is really, you know, not something that that means very much to us at this time. You know, it's mm -hmm. just um, we're just remembering, you know, all of his beautiful work and his spirit for for right now, for sure. I mean, he's I'm still here, you, you know, he's still us Greeks. We have. Um, you know, there's a reason we have have a 40-day memorial um, because it's like their spirit is still here amongst us, you know, for um, and for the foreseeable future uh, until they really sort of transition into uh, into the heavens, you know. So he's still here among us, and uh, we we honor that for sure. Gonna let you go. I, I sincerely appreciate the time. Constantine Maroulis, who, by the way, uh, I would have asked you about, I don't know if it's appropriate today, but certainly has a new album coming out July the 10th called Until I'm Wanted. Go look it up. Uh, Constantine, I, I do appreciate you taking some time today. I know it's a tough day for you and it, and it is greatly appreciated. No, thank you. And thank you to all uh, the beautiful people of Hamilton that have uh, 
prayed for our boy Nick. Uh, it did not go unnoticed, and it certainly got him through a hundred days nearly of this journey and battle. And uh, we thank you, and we appreciate you. And I hope to see you all again soon under better circumstances. Everyone mm. stay safe. We love you all here. I promise things are crazy right now in the world and certainly in our country. Um, but, you know, through the love and support that you've shown us and Nick, uh, we, we will get through this and we will be back. Um, and we will honor him on stage again very soon. Constantine Marul is a good friend of Nick Cordero. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you were listening to Bill Kelly, and I sincerely hope you were, I hope that's part of your daily program, your schedule. Just set the alarm, wake up at nine, listen to Bill all the way through, and it's a good start to the day. Anyway, earlier today, Bill was chatting about some of the changes that are coming to Ontario's school system, streaming being the main one, either streaming into academic or applied courses. And how some people, and including the government, are now saying that is a problematic choice of things to do because it essentially by grade nine dictates where you're going to go in life. It's an interesting position and it's uh, it's one that the government is saying is going to be changing. There was a second part. There was a second part of this announcement and this story that is coming out from the government as well. And it, it's getting less attention because certainly the streaming is the big announcement here. But Ontario has said, it, the government has said, it's also going to be making efforts to increase the number of minority teachers because children in schools, many of them are not seeing themselves reflected in their teachers. That's, that's a quote. Teachers, children do not see themselves reflected in their teachers. Is this a good idea? Is this an important idea? Is this a necessary idea? Let me bring in Ann Lopez. She's an associate professor in the teaching stream in the Department of Leadership of Higher and Adult Education and the Director of Center for Leadership and Diversity at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She joins me now. Ann, thanks for doing this today. Hello. Hi. Thank How- you for having me. Thank you very much. And by the way, I should have mentioned the Department of Leadership, Higher Education, Adult Education. That's University of Toronto. I got all my introduction all messed up, Anne, but we, we got it sorted out now. So th- thank you for being here. That's okay. And maybe I should say Ontario Institute for Studies in, in Education, OISE. Very good. Thank you. Did I get that one wrong too? It must be Monday. No, that's okay. It's a Monday. Um, this is an interesting part of this story that uh, that has gotten a lot less play, certainly, than the streaming part of it. Do we have evidence? Do we, uh, I think it may, there's some logic here, but do we have evidence that children do better when they see authority figures who look like them? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I was a classroom teacher uh, and I've been in education now for close to 28 years. And I was actually the academic director of initial teacher education at OISE and taught and a teacher educator um, there as well. Oh, absolutely. We have some research, uh, both quantitative and qualitative, and from the voices of students, that when they're able to see teachers who look like them, it, it, they act as role models for them in their learning. And, and that's number one. Number two, we also have grounded in research that uh, when, you know, we have a diversified um, teaching staff and, and school leaders, it also models the children what they can be and what they can do and, and really disrupts this idea as to who can be a teacher. 
And thirdly, again, grounded in research, voices of, of students and experiences, that um, it also uh, draws on the kind of knowledge base that students are exposed to when they have um, teachers and, and principals who are, who, who are from the same racial group. And we have all kinds of research to support that, absolutely. And we do see um, the increase in students' engagement um, and their educational outcomes as a result. So yes, absolutely. Let me go through a few of those points you just made. I just made some notes while you were talking mm-hmm. of uh, other ways, perhaps, uh, that, that clicked with me there. And I got to be careful because I don't want to suggest and I don't want anyone to think I'm suggesting that somehow because someone is one race or one background that it means they're going to necessarily do things different. That's a generalization. We don't need to go down that road. But would having someone from a different background, whether it's Asian or black or whatever, would that change, do you think, the way they teach or the learning style? Would that impact something different, not just in the visualizing of who's up at the front, but the way they teach? So, so yes, um, the, the, because as a teacher, you bring your lived experiences into teaching and learning. And so that should include um, what you teach and how you teach. But before we expand on that, let me touch a little bit on something that you've just said around the diversification and, and, and maybe that's overlooked. The reason why we do not have more black, indigenous and people of color as teachers and why the teaching profession remains predominantly white is because of historical barriers of racism. It's not because of lack of knowledge or lack of teaching ability. So that has to be sort of settled at the start that, that the reason for the paucity numbers is not from lack of interest or lack of knowledge, but it's historical barriers of exclusion that begin way back in elementary school. So we, you know, we can sort of have that as a, as a common starting point. So yes, when we have teachers um, from different backgrounds and different aspects of their identities, um, being in, in, in schools, it does impact the teaching and learning process because we bring our lived experiences into that process. It doesn't mean, and I'm so glad you said, you know, that we're not essentializing and absolutely we cannot. And it's important to have a diverse body of, of teachers and students because we need to, to do what I call build cross-cultural understanding. We need to be able to understand people and learn about them um, in, in affirming ways who are different from ourselves. But yes, um, it really models the students um, what they can be, we hope that it brings more of uh, an asset approach to teaching and learning um, for for racialized students when they see um, people who look like them in front of the class. And when you say um, models, Mm -hmm. I'm taking from that confidence. And we've heard a lot of time, I've had a number of math teachers on here uh, who have talked about how people are scared of math. And a lot of the the fear of math is around confidence. Well, if we extrapolate that to other things, is the idea that if you are more confident in class because someone you're looking at is looks like you, that you may have more confidence to do well in school? It's, it's one aspect. It, it's not the entirety of, of, of the schooling experience, but it's one aspect. Because, of course, we know teaching and learning, um, whether it's the teachers or the students, there are a number of variables that we, we, we maybe don't have time to talk about that involves, that is involved. So, for example, you know, what are students exposed to, their learning styles, um, some are more visual, some are more hands-on, you know, students have different interests. So we know that there is this diversity of, of ways that students learn. However, 
when it comes to um, black and indigenous and racialized students, and we look at the data that says to us that they're not achieving at the level that they should be. And when we look at that data, we begin to recognize that one of the, of the variables is the fact that much of the teaching profession is white, do not have those lived experiences, and also uh, might not have unpacked their own racist stereotypes and ways of thinking and how that translates into teaching strategies and approaches. So let me give you an example quickly. You know, when I uh, was a teacher educator, and of course, many of the teacher candidates were white. And I would say to the teacher candidates, if you saw a black, if you're at a school and you saw a black student or a group of students walking towards you in the hallway at five o'clock, what would you feel in your stomach? And why would that be? And what that conversation often brings out is the way in which many white folks have not really looked at race, how they're, they're socialized, and, and the ideas that, that they, they, they act on, and how that translates into teaching and, and learning, and then impact racialized students, you know, the way they're disciplined. Um, you know, you talk to any student, the expectations of them, some Students will tell you they never get more than 55 no matter what they do. Um, and they know that the quality of work that they have produced deserves way more than that. You know, guidance counselors telling them, well, you know, do not think about going into sort of medicine. Why don't you just, you know, be a, 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 a support worker? Always kind of directing them to, to, to lower areas and to lower kinds of, of, of employment. So absolutely so important for us to have that level of diversification. What about other racial groups? Um, if we say that we want black students to be able to look up to the front of the classroom and see black teachers as, as role models, as authority figures, should the same should we be doing the same for Asian students and Arabic groups and others? So you know, I'm going to touch a little bit about what we call that. What about ism? And so whenever we begin to speak about Black Indigenous and other racialized groups, then this sort of so what about other groups? I think um, that that bit of analogy is not necessarily the, the point of of the, of the conversation. Absolutely, each child, whether regardless of what um, demographic group or aspects of your identity um, in school, every child deserves and requires an environment, environment in which they can learn and thrive. However, what the data says, the data says that Black and Indigenous students predominantly are not doing well in school. And hence, that is our focus from our lived experiences. So to your question, absolutely. Um, every child, whether they're black, white, South Asian, Asian, every child deserves the educational, the environment to learn and grow and thrive and, and, and to achieve their best. And so do black and indigenous students whose data tell us have not been thriving, have not been having the educational outcomes based on an education system where, uh, where systemic racism is endemic um, from the top to the bottom. And so it, that's why we're having this conversation at this moment. I, I tell me again what you called that. What was the, uh, the something but? We call that what about ism. Oh, what about ism? So, okay, well, yeah, let me... So let, yes. <laughs> let me try to avoid another what about ism by sticking with perhaps a what about, but that the data does back up. All right. So I'm going to leave mm -hmm. out those ones, but we have seen, there's many studies now that are saying that boys in elementary school are struggling because they have no male teachers. Now this is one that can be backed by the data. 
Should we apply the same thing to say, yes, we want more black teachers, but we also have to make a much higher push. I think right now the number is like one in 10 elementary teachers are men. Is this a, are we doing this piecemeal in other words? Should we be doing an entire view with the data of where the students who are struggling, who they are, why they're struggling and fix that, all of it together? Absolutely. So, so keep in mind, there's two quick things to that. Um, remember that um, students and people, we have multiple aspects of our identity. So I'm black. I'm also a woman. So there's a gendered aspect and immigrant and I might have an accent and so on and so forth. Um, and so just to, so we need to keep that in mind as well. So we can just um, agree on that. There's intersectionality of oppression and experiences. Now to your question directly, absolutely. That has been an issue for some time um, in education. And I know when I was um, academic director of um, initial teacher education at OISE and taught in the, the teacher ed program, that when we were admitting teacher candidates, we really um, supported and encouraged males into the elementary programming because we do know from data that we do not have enough male figures in elementary um, education. And that is something that we, we work to address. Absolutely. So again, let's go back to the idea. So we want more, and, and I think we can say, yeah, we, we see the logic, we see the theory and the practicality beside, be, behind having more black teachers so that the black students who are in school see themselves up at the front of the class and see themselves respected or reflected. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky though, I think, because we, let's say we jump ahead and we have now hired a, a higher number of black teachers. There's no guarantee that every black student then is going to have a black teacher and that every white kid is going to have a white teacher. Do we need to change that then to funnel kids into classes with teachers of the same background for this to be effective? I think the construct of your conversation is a little bit uh, simplistic and I would, and, 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 and maybe not understanding in some ways the, the, the issues in, 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 of systemic racism, how that is manifested and therefore what we need to do. So I think, you know, even the, the, the sort of the, the notion, it's not, it's, 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 it, and we go back to the idea that each child that enters school is entitled to it is a responsibility of the education system to ensure that they have an environment in which they can learn and thrive. Well, as a black um, educator, uh, mother and grandmother, that I'm trying to, we are trying to say here is that historically and over time, both from empirical data and from the voices and stories and narratives of black people, that we just focus on black folks for the moment, that racism as, as a, and, white, and I'm going to say it, white supremacy as a structural issue in education, it created barriers to our, to our children's success. And that is the focus. So, so, so yes, it, it, because black folks are asking for certain things to happen, it's not denying any other group their rights. So no, no, not, I wasn't. I, uh, yeah, no, I wasn't suggesting that. My, my point was more along the lines of the, 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 as the government expressed it today, the idea is they want to make sure that black students as they're coming through school can see a teacher at the front, as we talked about earlier, and mm -hmm. someone who reflects them back. But you could go through potentially your entire elementary school system as a black student, even just by coincidence or by the way it breaks down then and never have a black teacher. 
Absolutely, yes. And so what we're saying is that we absolutely need to have more black teachers um, from elementary all the way to university, black professors, so that we can have that body of knowledge in the space of teaching and learning. Because um, black folks do bring a sense of understanding in history that needs to be there. We actually have a name for that. We call that representation. Representation matters. If you look in a society and every aspect of power and knowledge and, 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 and of its significance, you do not see yourself represented, what message does that send? And in, in the second part of that is we are not there, not because we're not knowledgeable, but because of the barriers that have kept us away from those spaces. So it's not as simple as, you know, well, we need to have sort of um, do this sort of balancing out. What we're trying to say is that when we have more black teachers, more black professors in elementary, in, 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 in secondary, in universities, it becomes a more enriching teaching and learning experience, not only for black students, but for all students. White students learning from black teachers is a very rich enriching experience, one many of which they've never had. White kids, you know, so we're not saying this is knowledge that every student should have. So everyone becomes enriched and, ev and the teaching and learning experience will get better for every student when we have more black um, teachers and educators um, in the system. Do you have confidence that this is going to happen? And I'll tell you why I asked that question, because mm -hmm. we know that right now the hiring system that I believe has been negotiated by the teachers unions and the province, and I can't remember which government it was that did it. Um, it it's very specific about who is eligible to be hired, who they can pick from. And it's based primarily on seniority and qualifications and everything. Um, is it, is the current hiring system, um, something that can be worked with to make this happen? Or do we have to redo the entire system of how the hiring is done? So, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about, having been a, uh, a member of OSSTF myself when I was a high school teacher and, you know, having to do hiring as an administrator. I think, and yes, so I do know what you're talking about. We call that feather bedding. That's the name for it, where, you know, you're hired based on seniority and their rules and so on. I think there's going to have to be conversations around that um, and how, what changes therefore are necessary within those systems to ensure that we can have an to do exactly what we want to do in terms of diversifying um, um, the teaching pool. And it's not just the unions that we're going to have to have conversations with. It's also faculties of education. It, you see, you see the, 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 the system of, of oppression and exclusion perpetuates itself. So if kids are having, if, if, if black and racialized kids are being pushed out from elementary school, it means they don't get to high school. Or when they do, they're streamed away from academic courses that would take them to university where they can choose teaching. And then so they're not available in the pool. So you're quite right. Conversations are going to have to happen around how unions then, when they're having conversations and looking at their contracts, how the issue of diversity, how does the issue of anti-Black racism, how that is taken up, how, what does that look like? So I think we're gonna have to have some ongoing conversations. And, you know, one of the things about education in Ontario, and I would say much of Canada and maybe in other provinces as well, and, and territories, is that it tends to be ad hoc. We tend to get policymaking sort of in a piecemeal way, 
rather than in a in a in a full holistic way um, and impacting the whole system from top to bottom. So let's hope that we can begin that conversation as well as to how we create wholesale systemic change right from K all the way to higher ed, teacher education, unions, and all families, communities, and all of the various stakeholders, so it's not a piecemeal approach. Anne Lopez, Director of the Centre for Leadership and Diversity at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. study was published in the journal Science Advances the other day. It was about ochre, not okra, not the vegetable ochre. It's a clay pigment that can be used as paint, and it was often found in Mexico. Have I lost you yet? <laughs> Stick around. I promise you it gets interesting. Um, I on, I didn't realize why I was reading about this study. It had been picked up and written about all over the place. Lots of lots of places had wrote about this study. And on its face, if you're just writing about a red pigment, you go, what is the interest in this? Why are we reading about a red pigment? Well, then it got way more interesting than any study on a red, red pigment should. Um, that's roughly around the same time my next guest entered the story here. Edward Reinhardt is a micropaleontologist who also happens to be a professor at McMaster, who also happens to be an expert diver, the scuba kind, not the springboard kind. Uh, he joins me now. Dr. Reinhardt, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining me. Um, before we get into the whole story of why this is so fascinating, can you just, to set this up a little, explain why ochre is so important? Um, well, as, as you said, I mean, ochre is this kind of red mineral, iron mineral pigment, and it was used very extensively by, I mean, past people and cultures in terms of body painting, wall painting, uh, could have been used as an insecticide, a variety of, of potential uses. Until when? When? I mean, uh, I guess I'm assuming well, I mean, it's fallen out yeah, of favor. People, I mean, people, people still. I mean, I, I found this surprising. I didn't, I didn't know much about ochre myself until we found it. I mean, I was aware of it, um, but you know, people use it in in doing painting today. I mean, in terms of if they if they like to use raw sort of pigments, uh, they actually still use it. All right, and, and I'm I'm assuming that I'm not the only one who is uh, naive about this or doesn't know. Most people, if you were to say, "Let tell me something about ochre," most people are going to look at you blankly, right? Let's have a, a yeah, vacant stare. Yeah, for for the most part, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. So you get you get a call from these people down in Mexico in the Yucatan area asking you to come and check out a discovery. First of all, when did this happen? Well, so actually, I mean, I've been working there for quite some time. I mean, I've been working there on other projects since about 2005. And uh, so I, I know the, ex I mean, I, I work with and they help me out in terms of my, my research, these cave explorers. And these are Fred Devos and, and Sindak and this organization. And, and they basically, they just love diving. They love diving. They love mapping these cave systems. And they come across some stuff every once in a while and, you know, they kind of, they talked to me about it. And in this case, it was like, well, yeah, that's a little weird. They thought it was like human disturbance. I mean, most of the time it's just natural, you know, just rocks and stuff in these caves. And um, and we're talking you know, underwater in the caves, right? Yeah, this is not yeah. just walking so around. Caves, this is Yeah, so these caves were once dry and people and animals were going in. So we find bones 
intact skeletons and extinct uh, animals that are found in the cave because they've, you know, but we've always wondered why were they, you know, why were they going into the cave? Why were these people, I mean, why would you want to go into a dark hole in the ground, right? I mean, it's like you don't have flashlights. I mean, now we've got really great flashlights, but back then you had to have a torch or light by fire. And, you know, it's a sort of wily coyote moment when your torch goes out and you're lost in this cave and how do you get out, right? So um, we always wondered why they were, why we were finding these skeletons. And now we know one of the reasons is they were after this ochre, which was, must have been super valuable and super important to them to go to all that effort to recover. The, um, okay, so you're, the people you've worked with before, they somehow discover these. How did, how did they come across what you ended up discovering? Well, so they, 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 they map it. So they, they, they just, as I said, they just like doing this and, and, you know, they're explorers and they're going into these caves for the first time. I mean, you know, a lot of people go down to Mexico for a vacation. It's all in the kind of Maya Riviera where all the resorts are, but they're really sort of unaware that there's like this huge, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds, thousands of kilometers of underwater cave that are underneath all these resorts and in that limestone. And a lot of them haven't been explored. Nobody's been in them. So, you know, nobody's been in this cave for the past, you know, 10,000, 10,000 years. They're not um, easily accessible. No. Well, I mean, they, they, if you know how to dive in them, yeah, they are. But there's just so many of them. I mean, you know, the cenotes that everybody got, kind of goes, a lot of people go swimming in. You know, this, this, these are the entryways into these, into these cave passages. And some of them are kind of tight and some of them are small. If you've seen any of the video online, it's, they're not exactly big. Some of them are, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty extreme environment in terms of it's remote. But if you are a, let's call it a vacation diver, you, you get your uh, certificate to be able to do scuba and you're planning to go out and swim in the, in the ocean to see some sea turtles or something. This is yeah. not the area you're going to be doing diving. This is a pretty extreme no, area no, to be scuba yeah. diving. You, you want to be really careful. So you need some pretty heavily, you know, some highly specialized training to be able to do this because you can get lost. You know, it's, it's, it requires, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the elite of scuba diving, if you will, in terms of the, you know, the technique and, and the approach. I mean, it's all manageable. It's all about risk management and doing things properly and within sort of set rules and protocols. And then it's safe. But, yeah, it does require some specialized training. Not anybody can do it. How do you not get lost? I mean, because being in dark caves underground when it's all water, yeah. and I'm assuming most of them look the same, I would think it's very easy to get turned yeah, around. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, I describe it as a rabbit warren of caves. I mean, you've got passages that kind of loop around and interconnect. Um, and so we have, you know, a lot of backup systems, um, backup lights, and then also when that cave is explored. So these guys, when they're exploring a cave, they actually put a line on the floor and that line stays in the cave and acts as a guideline and there's markers on it. So it's almost like, you know, our breadcrumbs kind of leading, mm. leading the path in, leading the path out. And so you just don't, you, you're always aware of that. And that's a, you know, something that you're trained and it's, you know, it, it's ingrained in you. You never lose track of that line. You're always, you're always keeping an eye on where it is. Reading the story, though, about this, some of the areas that you have to get through to keep working through the caves, these are pretty tight areas. I mean, again, this is a, this is not a comfortable, yeah. I would think, place. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, some of them, 
you know, a lot of the Cape Passage is quite big there, but there is uh, spots where it gets pretty tight. And, you know, one of the sections we had to go through, I mean, you know, you kind of have to kind of back your way into it on, you know, and then kind of wiggle your way out. It's it's a tight, uh, tight hole to get through. But once you get beyond that, it's, you know, the cave is, you know, relatively big, a couple meters and sort of height and stuff. So it's, it's uh, a lot easier, but there's definitely some tight spots, but yeah. It sounds like a, the most horrible thing for some sort of scary movie to have everyone stuck in these little passages of a cave. But now just before we get to what you found, were you, did you learn to scuba because of your work for your work or did it happen to be a fortuitous thing that you were a scuba diver and your work allowed you to do this? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I start. I, I learned how to scuba dive when I was quite young. I won't give you my age, but you know, I've been diving for 20, 30 years and, uh, uh, this was, uh, I mean, a research area. I mean, I actually went to a, a dive conference and heard about somebody talking about the caves in Mexico. And, and I, you know, I thought, oh, I think there's some research opportunities down there in terms of, you know, these, these environments. I mean, being a geologist and a paleontologist, this is, you know, I'm always looking for new avenues and kind of went back and sort of looked and Googled stuff and couldn't find anything. And that's, Kind of how I, I got interested, and then I convinced my wife and and my do- my daughter to go to on a vacation to Mexico, and I took a you know a cave diving course down there at, at that time, and uh, yeah, that's where it kind of uh, kind of started. I mean, we're we're doing a lot of other things other than this as well, so it's it's part and parcel of my kind of broad research program right now. Well, let me just say this. You are a micropaleontologist. You've got your PhD. There's a lot of reasons to think you're a very smart guy. Choosing Mexico, especially living here in Hamilton for the wintertime to be your area of study, that shows you are a brilliant man, right? <laughs> I've always said I'm going to do something uh, in Hawaii someday as my uh, my area of expertise. So, yeah, um, you know, yeah, I get that comment a lot, but you know, it still works. It still works. It's still a lot of hard work. So these guys who you've worked with before, these colleagues say, can you please come down? We've discovered something. You go into the caves, you're, you're scuba diving through this area and you come into the area that they have discovered, which is what? Well, so we, we, we called it La Mina, which is, um, you know, Spanish for the mine. And, and it's, um, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's basically like go for, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's it's like you know a, a a mine where you know they turned off the lights and they went home and nobody ever returned. In terms of, it's really pretty a spectacular site. In terms of all the tools, it's like they're just sort of left right there. I mean, you can see the holes. You can see where the, you know, they piled the spoil while they were kind of mining and and so we saw these holes and I saw them and it was well like what were they what were they after what were they digging for you know and I, I grabbed some of the kind of you know sediment dirt on the side of one of the pits and underwater the the the, the red light gets filtered out really quickly so even with your you know your your light it doesn't appear red and it was sort of brownish and I thought well maybe it was ochre I mean I was aware of it and kind of got it back to the surface and got out in the sunlight and the stuff was just bright bright red so you know i immediately knew that that's what they were after and and then we took some some charcoal so there's big piles of charcoal where they had fires and they even had like these stone piles of stones to mark their way and uh so we got some radiocarbon dates and it ended up being really really old and then i knew at that point that we were on to you know onto something quite uh quite significant uh for for paleo indian 
our understanding of paleo Indian Indian uh, research uh, for the I, area. You know, I, I I don't know if it's considered flippant. It's not meant to be, but I mean, when I say this is real Indiana Jones type stuff, I mean it is. It, it's it's not just sitting at a desk. It's it's the kind of field exploration and then being able to, as you say. So I would say walk, but swim into an area where probably no one has seen this for what ten thousand years. I mean, that's got to be a very cool feeling. Yeah, it is. Yeah, for sure. Because you know, I mean, being in the cave and then now being underwater, it it really is. You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of archaeological sites on you know the land surface. I mean, they're covered in soil and dirt, and you know, you can't. You have to dig down, and you don't really know what you've got. Whereas here, it's just it's just all displayed and 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 so well preserved you know and nobody's been in there for 10,000 you know it's like nobody and um that's it's it's a pretty it's a pretty cool feeling right to see that kind of all for the first time right and, and again i mean i i don't know i don't think this is probably a real well maybe it's a, a fair comparison but i mean when um when howard carter uh you know found king tut's tombs yep. i only raise that because it sounds like what you've discovered is almost as pristine. Most often I would think in archaeology or, you know, this kind of things, you're not finding things in almost a pristine state because time has eroded them or whatever. It sounds like you came across something in a pretty pristine state. Yeah. It's like a time. It's, it's like that. It's like a time capsule. It's like opening, you know, Egyptian tomb for the first time. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's equivalent. It's equivalent to that. You know, I mean, you've, I mean, as soon as they get flooded, you don't get, you know, I mean, oftentimes you get other groups through time kind of, you know, disturbing stuff um, along the way. And, and this has just been like, yeah, it was used. And then somebody, you know, shut the door, turned the lights off, and that was it, you know. So it, it's pretty uh, it's super interesting. Now, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is correct, are the people who would have been working there or in that area, do we believe they are among the first people who would have lived on the continent? Yes, so they're, 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 they are definitely a part of this very, you know, one of, the, one of the, the early wave of people that came to the Americas across, you know, the, uh, the Bering Strait when there was the land bridge and sea level was lower after you know, the last glacial period and then, you know, the, all that water in the ice melted, went into the ocean, the ocean filled up and then that land bridge got cut off. So these date to, you know, a little bit of time after, after that uh, sort of initial sort of migration. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, 12,000 years ago and they're already down in the Yucatan is, is, is quite, uh, quite interesting in terms of, you know, their migratory sort of pathway, if you will. Cold water, as I understand it, preserves very well. What I mean, I, I, it's not you're not in the Arctic here. You're not at the bottom of the ocean. Did the yeah. water itself preserve the stuff, or did it damage it? Yeah, no, it, it certainly did. I mean, in terms of um, it's it, because there's no light that you get no, you know, there's no biological growth there, right? I mean, that's why in the you know if you've seen the video, it's like crystal clear. It's almost like you're diving in air. It's that that clear. And it's, there's just no biological, there's no light. So there's no primary, there's no photosynthesis, there's no algaes or anything like that in the water. Um, and there's not a lot of flow in that water. It's sort of kind of stagnant. So it just is, yeah, it preserves it, it preserves it really well and then pre- and preserves it from, you know, disturbance afterwards. That's probably the most significant, right? Nobody can get in there. Nobody can actually move things around. 
you were there not for a vacation. I mean, it sounds very cool as a place to go and visit, like going down to Titanic, I suppose. It sounds very cool, but you're not there just for fun. You're there for work. You're there as a scientist. What do we learn? What can we learn then from this? What application do we take from this? Because I'm sure you're looking for that. Yes, and it, I mean, it, it, it fits into this overall understanding in terms of, you know, I mean, how these how these early migrants to the Americas existed. I mean, how did they how did they live? You know, it it's it what we have preserved is it. I mean, we can see so much behavior there in terms of their understanding. I mean, you know, I'm a geologist by you know training, and and you could see them applying stratigraphic, you know, these things used for finding oil and gas and, and, you know, mineral deposits, you can see them applying these sort of basic sort of principles to mine out this ochre to find it. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's pretty um, awesome to sort of think in terms of, you know, how do I find ochre? I mean, some, some of this is buried underneath rock. I mean, where do I dig? How do, like, which cave? There's so many caves. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting this wonderful sort of insight into this kind of industry that's never been displayed. You know, I haven't had that opportunity, you know, almost worldwide in terms of what we're finding there. So it's still early days, and there's stuff there that I think that we're going to be able to contribute to and, and more stuff that we're going to find that's going to be, I mean, in terms of the preservation and what we can learn, it, it, it's, it's going to be pretty incredible, we suspect. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is there, have you, has there been surveys or any kind of thing that have been done to show whether you're near the end of the caves that they've been explored or are we still like hundreds and thousands of miles of caves left to it? Yeah, no, we hundreds of that. Like it's, it's just, they're scratching the surface. I mean, you know, you've got like, you know, longest underwater cave, it's 200, 300, you know, kilometers of, and all of this is, is has to be mapped by hand. In terms of you know these these explorers, I mean they're laying that cave that line on the bottom for navigation, and then they're they're using a compass and a measuring tape to measure you know the direction and and distance uh, of, of of the cave, and so it's time consuming. There's no there's no easy way to remotely you know you can't use a satellite to kind of map the river you know uh, it's you know the underwater cave it's under rock it's in, it's in the water there's no real readily available remote sensing, if you will, tools that uh, allows, allows us to accurately map the cave. So yeah, it's, 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 it's vast. I mean, that's why I'm saying, I mean, there's, there's, there's bigger, perhaps bigger discoveries than this that are, are, are awaiting us. It is, uh, it is a fascinating story, as I say off the top. Uh, when I started reading a piece about finding ochre, I could not have imagined that I could be interested. But when I, when I read on yeah. to how it was found and everything yeah. else, and there is a picture that I pulled up on my computer screen here on one of the stories that you're talking about, the clarity of the water. Um, it, it really, it was taken in one of these caves. Um, it looks like there is no water at all in this yeah. photo. No, it is exactly. that clear. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you're floating in and you got to kind of tell yourself you're not going to fall. I mean, particularly when you're in a big, there's another system that's got a big pit and it drops a hundred feet and you're kind of floating there and you got to tell yourself, oh, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall because it's just so clear, you know. Yeah. Fascinating story. I would encourage people to go look it up. Um, Joel, or sorry, Edward Reinhardt is his name uh, from McMaster. Hey, listen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for telling yeah. the story. Well, thank you. 
Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.